Thank you, Leo, and uh, thank you, Luke, so much for leading us in that prayer for our nation. Really appreciate it. Uh, well, good evening, everybody. It's good to be back with you. If you are new, joining us for the first time, uh, my name is Steve, lead pastor here. Glad to have you with us. And we are in a series uh, this fall and then uh, early part of next year in First Peter. And First Peter is the Apostle Peter, one of Jesus' closer friends, uh, closer friends, writing to believers who are living in a society where most people do not follow Jesus. Where if you're a Christian, most people at best will not understand you when they find out that you follow Jesus. And so uh, we're continuing along in this passage. Pick, uh, it's a similar theme to last week in terms of how we live and belong to Jesus in the context of community. And uh, by the way, Andrew, thank you so much for preaching for us uh, last week. Um, it was a, a very encouraging message and challenging. And, you know, the saying, if you're asked to do something, do it poorly so you're not asked to do it again. We didn't follow that advice. So I know I speak on behalf of the church when I say looking forward to having you do that again, but not for a while because you're about to have a child. So, um, yeah, thanks so much for preaching God's word to us last week. So in, in essence, what Peter is doing today is he wants to change our intuitions. So like when you think about an intuition, what's an intuition? An, an intuition is a belief you hold that's more so just based on something you feel rather than because it's based on conscious reasoning, right? So it's a belief you hold based on what you feel rather than you've like worked it out through conscious reasoning. It's something instinctive. So like when you hear something, it's the thing that makes you go, yes, that's right, or no, that's ridiculous. It's, it's intuitive. And say one thing for Americans, one of our deepest intuitions is that life is about the individual me, right? So as I go about my life, like what I often think about is, you know, am I finding personal happiness? Is ABC contributing to my dreams and my personal fulfillment? And there's a historian named Carl Truman. I know some of you are, are familiar with him. And uh, he taught at Princeton for a while, and now he's at Grove City, I believe. And so he has a book coming out this fall uh, called The Rise of the Modern Self, where he traces how identity has shifted over the years and how, like, how currently, how current identity formation works with a heavy emphasis on the self impacts society. Some things are good, a lot of things are negative. And one of the things he says is, like, where you see this focus on the individual me play out, among many other areas, is the area of job satisfaction. So he says, I remember a long time ago asking my granddad, who was a factory worker in industrial England, I asked him, you know, granddad, is your job satisfying to you? And his response, without even thinking, was, yeah, it's satisfying because I'm able to put shoes on my, my children's feet and I'm able to put a meal on the table for my family. And Carl Truman says, you notice what's interesting about that is it was completely, like, outwardly focused, which is why he found his job satisfying. But he says, if you asked me, who, I'm a teacher, if I find, if I found my job satisfying, I would say something to the effect of, yes, it's satisfying because I like the feeling of being in front of a class and discussing interesting ideas. It gives me a buzz, so to speak. And he says, notice, yeah, of course I enjoy what I'm doing for the students, but it's primarily inwardly focused. You know, what's this doing for me in the moment? And, that's a massive shift culturally, you know, going from how we think about work to being what we're doing for the community, going to now what is this doing for me? And we do this in pretty much every area. So like when you think about, you know, what city you want to live in or what career or job you have, or do you want to have kids or not? Or do you want to get married or not? Most of the time, the way you, you filter those decisions isn't Okay, what is this going to do for the community around me or for other people? But it's, how is it going to make me feel in the moment, right? And what Peter says here in this passage, I love it because it's so challenging, is he says, 
living for just what is best for the individual me in the moment, that is a small and ultimately unsatisfying story to live in. And instead, I want to invite you into something far grander and more enduring because at the heart of it, you are made to be a relational being. And so when you live your life through the grid of your most important relationships, that's what's going to lead to a more satisfying life and, you know, most importantly, a life eternal with, with the Almighty God. And so he says there are two most important relationships that you need to keep front and center as you go about your life. And the first is your relationship with Christ. And the second is your relationship with your church family. And so that's how we'll walk through this passage. So number one, how does your relationship with Christ change how you think about things? Uh, number two, your relationship to your church family. How does that impact your life as you go about things? Okay, so first, number one, uh, the relationship that you have with Christ. And so beginning verse four, Peter says, as you come to him, that's Jesus, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house. Okay, so here Peter's laying out a metaphor. So this idea of when you go to Jesus, you are one stone among many other stones who are the other people in the church. We'll get to that in part two. But he says, you're building your life on Jesus. And so how does he describe Jesus? That's in verse six. He says, for it stands in scripture, behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So that's a quote from Isaiah when he calls Jesus the cornerstone. So here, uh, P- Peter is continuing with what he said in chapter 1, where he said the prophets hundreds of years before Christ even came, like predicted things about who Jesus would be and, and what he would do. And the key word there is he says, Jesus is a cornerstone chosen and precious. So a cornerstone in ancient architecture was often the largest and the most important stone in the house because... Like the, the shape and the integrity of the stone would, would then impact the shape and the integrity of the house. So if the stone had nice right angles, then the house would have nice right angles. If the stone was rounded, the house would be rounded. If the stone was flawed, then the rest of the house would ultimately be flawed and, and crumble. And also the stone was literally precious because Often the stone was as expensive as the entire rest of the house because, uh, one, the amount of time and labor it took into choosing the stone and then for the people to, to cut it, you know, completely perfectly so then the rest of the house would be sure. And so when Peter says that uh, Jesus is the ultimate cornerstone, essentially what he's saying is he is the perfect, most stable, most sure thing or person to build your life on, is what he's saying. And then what he does is he lays out two possible building projects. So the first one he's already alluded to, one is placing all of your life on Jesus Christ. And then he says, but there's an alternate way to live, and that's to deem Jesus unworthy to be the basis of your life and to reject him. So that's why he says in verse 7, the honor is for those of you who believe, and Jesus is the cornerstone, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word, that's the gospel about Jesus Christ, as they were destined to do. So what Peter's doing here is, because he loves his readers, uh, he's saying something that makes, especially Westerners, very uncomfortable. This doesn't make people in a lot of other areas of the world uncomfortable, but for Western people it does. What he's doing is he's laying down a binary uh, where he says, there's no neutrality when it comes to Jesus. So you either base your life on him 
or you reject him. So in love, what I'm saying is, you know, don't think that you're walking along in your life and you come across Jesus, you know, as this big stone in the path of your life, and you can just walk around him and then keep going and all will be as it was. He says, no, it's, you can't be indifferent toward him. Uh, Jesus used this language all the time. You know, he says, I am the way, and it's only through me that you can come to the Father. So you either base all of your life on me or you reject me. And so this is a word of challenge and encouragement, both for the unbeliever um, and for the believer. So to the unbeliever, what Peter's urge here is, so let me clarify a little bit, because this final sentence often makes people trip up. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. So when he says that they were destined to do, one, this is supposed to be comfort for believers, because he's saying even as you're being persecuted, know that all of history is in God's complete and good control of all things, right? So nothing's happening that, that is a surprise to God. But to the unbeliever, he says, even though God is in control of history, you do have complete free will. Like you are not a puppet. And so what Peter urges is, he says, please come to him. Like he says in, in verse four, come to him a living stone, because if you reject Jesus, what that means is when he says in verse seven, the honor is for those who believe if you don't trust Jesus with your life, then your life will end in shame. Because, And what that means is because you don't honor God as you should, because you don't love other people as you should, what is just for God to do is to judge you for sin and have you be cut off from God for eternity. So that's the challenge. Like, take this call of Christ seriously. But the good and wonderful news about Jesus Christ is if you do come to him, then you can have complete, 100% total assurance that if you're relying on Jesus for forgiveness of sins and, and newness of life, then you can know with absolute certainty that your life will not end in condemnation, but welcomed by God and embraced by God into the heart of things is the call of, of Peter here. And so to the unbeliever, it's, it's come to Christ. Don't just think you can be neutral to him. But for the believer, it's, it's also a challenge and an encouragement. And here's the, the challenge to believers. So Peter's saying, one of the ways that you know that Jesus isn't just an idea to you, or one of the ways you know you just haven't like intellectually assented to, you know, a set of doctrine or you know some some truths is the cornerstone. Remember, it sets the trajectory of your life and it affects everything about the building. And so, every single part of your life should be in line with the shape, you know, lines and destiny of Jesus, so to speak. And because here's what we often do. Like when we start following Jesus, how it often works is we say, yes, Jesus, I want, I want forgiveness of sins. You know, I want to have assurance of eternal life, but don't touch this area. And so it's a little bit like this when, and this is kind of funny because two people came over to our house this morning, but so this is a illustration and I'm adapting a little bit from Sam Albury, but I do it. And so it's fitting when people are coming over Often, and I didn't do this that much this morning, but usually what I'll do is I'll look at all the clutter that's on my countertop or desktops, and I'll like put it all away in a room, you know, either in a bedroom or in a closet. So then when the person shows up, you know, I can just open the door and say, hello, you know, welcome to my clean and tidy minimalist home. Make yourself at home. If you want to go in this bedroom, you can go there. If you want to use the bathroom, you can use that. But don't touch this one room. That room with the door shut, you know, if I could put booby traps in front of it, don't touch it because, I mean, one, how much would you judge me if you open the door and you just see this pile of stuff? But, you know, then you're going to, like, want me to change things about my behavior and so on and so forth. But is, is that not what we do with Jesus, where we invite him, like, into our lives and we say, yes, 
you can go here, you can go here, you can go here, but don't you dare touch that room. And so, you know, it could be any number of areas. It could, it could be your finances, it could be your career, it could be your sex and dating life, it could be you know, any number of areas that we, we don't want Jesus to change. And so what Peter says is one of the ways you know Jesus is your cornerstone is you don't keep like those one or two areas where you just want to control, but you invite Jesus in to, to do his work on it, to challenge you, to change you in it. Now, a really great but simple example of this, of bringing Jesus into your career, is one of our members recently was interviewing for a job. And he was telling me this job, it required work on Sundays. And so just what he told the interviewer was, hey, you know, I would love to work here, et cetera, et cetera. However, um, what I would really appreciate, I just want to let you know on the front end is, you know, going to church is really important to me. And so uh, if there's a way that I can have yeah, I understand if I can't take every Sunday off, but if there's any way I can just have, you know, even if it's two, you know, three or only two Sundays a month off so I can go to church, uh, that would, that would really mean a lot to me. And I just thought that was a really encouraging example because that, that's a risk, right? Where you're now, you know, you risk rejection of that job if you're not showing, you know, quote unquote, total fidelity to the company. But like that, that's a very simple and ordinary, uh, but uncommon way of inviting Jesus into your career. Right, so Peter's question is just look at all the different areas of your life. And I thought about giving you a bunch of examples, but I just want to trust the Holy Spirit here to, to do some work in your all's lives. Like, where are you just trying to control things rather than putting your life on Jesus as the cornerstone? So that's the challenge. Um, but the encouragement is the opposite side of that same coin. And that is that Jesus is your cornerstone. So meaning the only person or thing that can give you absolute assurance and satisfaction in life, you have if you're trusting in Jesus Christ. And so, yes, Jesus asks you to do hard things. He asks you to change your intuitions. He asks you to bring him in and to, you know, wreck every area of your life. He asks you to risk, risk rejection by those who don't know Jesus. However, he's always trustworthy, and you will not be put to shame if you bank every single area of your life on Jesus. And how do you know? Because it's scary to, you know, make yourself vulnerable by giving every single area of your life to somebody else. And the way you know that Jesus is trustworthy is because he's already proven it. You know if someone's trustworthy when, if they've made a promise to you, but then when it comes time to keep that promise, they have to lose like their cornerstone or the foundation of their life. You know, what do people often do? They're like, okay, I know I said this, but I'm not going to anymore because it's going to cost me too much. But for Jesus Christ, when it came time for him to risk or lose the foundation of his life, did he, keep, did he keep his promise to you? And the answer is, absolutely he did. Because for Jesus, what was the foundation of his life? It was his father. I mean, all throughout of his life, God was his cornerstone. I mean, he cherished God the Father. He depended on God the Father. When he was besieged by Satan in the wilderness, he ran to his father in prayer. He quoted his father's word. When he was in the Garden of Gethsemane, scared out of his mind, he just went to his knees crying out to the Father. But on the cross, that was where that foundation was completely taken away. Where that cornerstone he always had, he didn't have. But what did he do? He stayed there so that you can have what Jesus lost on the cross. So that you can have a foundation that never crumbles, that never fades, that you can be sure is always certain. And then he proves his victory and wisdom by raising from the dead and says, I promise you... I promise you, whatever that area is of your life that you're holding on to because you're worried about what will happen if you give it to me, I will always come through far more than you ever anticipated. Come to him, the living stone, Peter says. 
and you will not be put to shame. Okay, so that's your relationship with Christ. It's not just about the individual you, but a far richer story of being united to him by being the stone on top of him, the cornerstone. Next, Peter says, okay, this enriching experience of being cemented to Jesus, it doesn't happen with just a me and Jesus, you know, in a vacuum Christianity. But it happens what? It happens in the context of community. And he gets at that in verse 5. So, in verse he says, as you come to Jesus, so notice these are tied together. As you come to Jesus, verse 5, you yourselves like living stones are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Okay, so this is temple imagery. So first he says, you, you yourself living, it's a living stone because Jesus is literally living. He's not still dead, are being built up as a spiritual house. So here he's talking about the temple. And before Jesus came, what the temple was, was it was the place where you could experience God in a fuller way than you could anywhere else, okay? And so it was like the the fullest expression of God that he was giving to his people. Then Jesus comes, and in John chapter 2, he says, I am the true temple. You know, destroy this temple, and I'll rebuild it in three days. He's referring to his resurrection. And what happened was when Jesus was crucified, the, the thick curtain that was uh, dropping down, separating the Holy of Holies, the holiest part of the temple where God's presence was uh, from the rest of the temple. That was torn from top to bottom. What that symbolized was because Jesus is the perfect sacrifice, because he's the perfect priest. Now, you don't need priests to mediate um, you know, your relationship between you and God. You can just go to God directly. And so now you're, you're all priests because and Jesus gets at this in John chapter 14 and John chapter 16. He says, when you trust in me, my spirit, the Holy Spirit, will come and dwell in you. And so now you, you don't need, again, a priest to mediate, but you can just come to me directly. And so what does this mean? Because this sounds like, you know, kind of lofty language. What does this really mean for me? So first, think about the language of stones being built up into a spiritual house. So if you think about stones, you know, think bricks, right? So each stone is is needy and needed, right? So each stone is needy. In other words, it needs stones underneath it to hold it up. Um, am I saying this right? I'm confusing myself a little bit. Yeah, needy, it has stones underneath holding, but it's also needed. So the stone is there to help, you know, pack stones other in next to it and support the stones that are on top of it. And so keeping this image in mind with the idea that God's fullest presence used to come into the temple in the Old Testament period, what Peter's saying is, in short, is, your fullest potential as a human being and as a follower of Jesus Christ can only be realized in the context of community, right? Because now each expression of the local church is a new temple, so to speak, where when you all come together, God's presence comes and meets us in a way that's unique and can't happen when we aren't gathered together. It, this is this is amazing. This is very counterintuitive to to Christianity, just, I mean, uh, right before COVID, I was at Northside Social and a lady saw me reading my Bible and long story short, she was telling me she just started reading the Bible and I asked her, you know, do you have a church home? Do you go anywhere? She's like, no, you know, just because I think religion should be very private. If I want to know Jesus, I can just read my Bible. And in one sense, she's right, but not, not fully, right, based on what Peter's saying here. But then what's amazing is he says, you're a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So, 
what in the world does he mean by spiritual sacrifices? Um, so first, what he means by holy priesthood is, so a priest is somebody who did the ministry. So priests would, you know, say the prayers, offer the sacrifices. So now that we are all priests in Christ, it's no longer just a select few doing ministry, like in the Old Testament where the rest of the people are passive, but all of us are priests. All are doing ministry. So what does that ministry look like? Well, he says to offer spiritual sacrifices. What does that mean? In Hebrews chapter 13, he says, he's talking about a very similar theme and the author of Hebrews in in chapter 13, verse 15, the author says, through Jesus, then let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. A sacrifice, a spiritual sacrifice of praise to God is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. So what they're saying is, This is profound, guys, because we often overlook these things. God has uniquely empowered you to do the work of ministry. And often what that looks like is when you simply speak the name of Christ. So when you're sitting with somebody in this church who's hurting or unsure or is afraid or feeling alone, or you're you're helping correct with you know, helping correct somebody because they haven't made Jesus their true cornerstone, or you're sharing Jesus with an unbeliever. It's more than just something ordinary in the surface. You are part of something cosmic and eternal where you are actually helping that person know Jesus and persevere unto glory in a way that will not happen unless you're doing it. Because of what's happening is we as living stones are acting as a priesthood offering spiritual sacrifice. One of those things is confessing the name of Jesus Christ. And then the the author of Hebrews also says it's not just using your words, But verse 16, do not neglect to do good and to share what you have. So not just words, but deeds. So when you guys do very simple things, so sharing with what you have, when you tithe to the church, when you do good, when you do things like showing up early to clean or set up music stands or put signs outside, those of you who helped set up the member gathering last week, right, for the baptism, that's more than just, okay, we're making an event happen but it's something, it's part of something cosmic and eternal. This is something life-changing that's taking place, even though it looks so ordinary. And so Jesus says something astounding in Matthew chapter 11. And in Matthew chapter 11, he's talking about John the Baptist. And he says, in, John, in Matthew chapter 11, verse 11, he says, I tell you, there's no one born of a woman greater than John the Baptist, meaning no one in history up until now is greater than John the Baptist. And John, because John the Baptist, he was a pretty great person. He heralded Jesus Christ, right? He baptized Jesus. But then he says, um, no one, yeah, then he says, Jesus says, yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. Yet the one who's least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than John the Baptist. And what Jesus, what Jesus is saying here is, in short, like, if you think you are the weakest Christian, or if you think you are the most failed Christian, or the least gifted Christian, you actually know more about the gospel and can change lives more than John the Baptist himself could because the Holy Spirit is within you. Or put another way, you are not a mistake. God choosing you was not a mistake. Jesus coming to save you was not a mistake. Him empowering you by His Holy Spirit was not a mistake. 
There are some hands because of your history and your temperament and your wounds that only you can hold. Some hearts that only you yourself can speak to. And so I want you to hear what Jesus is telling you through Peter, which is don't discount who God has made you to be. When I'm your cornerstone and you're in this body, the smallest, most simple, ordinary acts that you do change the course of history. And so last week, you know, we talked about for the next year, we, what the thing that we're focusing on is as a church becoming a tighter knit family. And in large part, that happens through quantity time, right? Like stones in a temple, they're there together all the time, next to each other all the time. It happens through quantity time. And the encouragement that I want you guys to have is that we're not just doing it just to do it. And Steve couldn't figure out what to do for next year. But no, okay. The, the reason why we're doing this is because it's, it matters on a deeper and far more eternal level than, than I myself or any of you in this room realize. And so you're being here, whether you're in this church for another month or you're here for five more years or ten more years, it's not an accident that you're in this city and that you're in this church. And so come to him, Jesus, the living stone, and then as you do so, invest in the lives of those in your family members because it makes all the difference in the world. Let's go to God in prayer. Uh, Heavenly Father, I thank you uh, so much for what a earth-shattering privilege it is that we as your people get to be the new temple. I thank you that we don't need priests anymore. I thank you that we don't need to slaughter animals anymore or make sacrifices, but we can just come to you directly, Lord. And I pray that um, we will, we are flawed and broken people, but we are empowered by you. And so I pray that as we live out what it means to be on the living stone, the cornerstone of Jesus Christ, Lord, that um, you will do amazing things through us so that when we arrive in the new creation, the new heavens, the new earth, we can look back and say, uh, what an amazing God it is that we serve. And we thank you for that privilege. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.